to remind myself that I've made this decision, but I've made the decision that it's much more fulfilling to have a short career knowing that I've stayed true to myself than to have a long career having kissed the of white men, those who uphold systems of patriarchy and capitalism. It feels better, I think, knowing that I've stayed true to this idea, this feeling, this calling I have towards justice for all. Salam and hello everyone. My name is Lily Bakala Piper and welcome to the show. Welcome to season two. We are so happy that you've decided to spend some time with us. We have missed you. We've been on a break for a few weeks to develop content for you for season two and work on our operations. And we are delighted to be back. And thank you for the messages you sent us and your engagement with our best of series. We hope you really enjoyed that. We, we loved re-listening to some of the stories that we loved this year in the last few weeks, but we're really excited to be back with season two, new guests, new formats. You're gonna see a lot of new things coming your way. You might also notice behind me, new artwork. We are so grateful for Yego Neiser, a local Nairobi artist who took our logo and turned it into this incredible piece of art. So Yego Neiser, thank you so much, Asante Sana. And the artwork is not the only thing that's new. We also have our first live event coming up on September 24th. We have Dr. Ijoma Kola joining us for a live event, a live podcast recording at Beite Salam in Westlands. We would love to see all of you there. We'd love to meet some of you who have been messaging us and sending us the kindest and warmest wishes. Come out, meet us all. The whole team will be there. And Dr. Kola, who is a historian of race and medicine, as well as being a social impact entrepreneur. She is extraordinary. And if you know any of her digital presence, you know that she's an amazing storyteller, but also an incredible advocate and champion for women, especially in the health space. So September 24th at Beite Salam, tickets will be in the show notes as well as in our bio. So we would love to see you there. And they're limited. So get your tickets, show up, don't, don't, don't miss out. And lastly, before we get into this interview, it would really help us in season two if you would like, subscribe, share, follow. It really helps the show. Enough of all the commercials. Let me get to the introduction of today's guest. Born to a Nigerian father and an Ethiopian mother and having traversed multiple continents, they are the epitome of a global perspective and rich heritage. Arsema, Angela, Adelawayemi Hamera Thomas isn't just an actor mesmerizing audiences as the young Lady Danbury in Netflix's Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story, but they are also a multilinguist, an advocate for health equity, a tech entrepreneur, and a staunch voice for justice. And you're going to hear that throughout our conversation today. Off screen, their transition from global health to the uh, big screen has been nothing short of awe-inspiring. Today, Arsema and I dive deep into our shared Ethiopian heritage, into what does justice mean if the rising waters don't lift everyone, what she hopes that she can bring to her work, not just now, but in the future. It is a beautiful conversation. She is one of the most, I don't know, thoughtful and deep thinkers that I've had the great joy to interview in the last year. 
and I know you're going to love it. It's not just another Bridgerton interview. It is a deep dive into what brings joy and justice to the life of actor, uh, activist, academic Arsema Thomas. So Arsema, welcome to the show. We are over the moon delighted to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much, Lily, for that great intro. I love it. Uh, thank you for making time. I have to tell you that we had you on top of our list of like hopeful big dreams. Trevor Noah was second. And so when this has worked out, I'm like, oh, we're about to book Trevor. We got our number one. This is going to be like easy to read. So you've spoiled us. Unfortunately, you've spoiled us because now we think all our dreams are going to come true. So we're so, so happy to have you on the show. No worries. I pray they do come true. Well, I'll make sure. I'll try and Thank you know, you. put the pressure yes. on him. <laughs> oh, if you can, please, please do. So. You know, you have been interviewed all over the place. And so we really wanted to create a conversation today that focuses on both our values and the broad scope of work that you have done. So, you know, we often when we've been looking at stories about you and, and researching you, you know, the, the story often starts with your Nigerian father and your Ethiopian mother. But I would love to hear from you if that's where you feel like your story starts. And when people ask you, you know, where would you want them to begin when they're talking about Arsema Thomas? You know, I think it, for me, makes the most sense that it starts with my parents. The fact that my dad is Nigerian and my mom is Ethiopian kind of always fostered this Pan-Africanism in the household. I remember that was like one of the few words that I remember being able to say and understand what I was saying. And I think I was maybe 10 years And both of them having worked in development on Africa, both of their like full on dedications to the continent. I think everything I am, uh, it comes from my parents, like the privilege, everything. I can't, it would be unfair to start at any, any later than that. That's, it's wonderful to hear that. I think some points it feels like we're moving more and more away of, into individualistic thinking at times on the continent. So it's wonderful to say that you're still holding on to those roots. And, and, and in those interviews and where we've been researching, you know, we have been curious a little bit, you know, Nigeria, Ethiopia, two of the most populous countries on the continent, I think the two most populous. And I think we can easily say the most kind of intense cultures, you know, I don't think you meet any Nigerian or Ethiopian that's not incredibly proud of who they are. So I would love to know if you don't mind sharing with us, you know, how did your parents meet and how did this Pan-African family find its beginning? It's interesting. They Actually, to this day, I don't really know what the details are of how they met. <laughs> very African way of telling like a story. It's like very vague. Isn't you know? that the truth? Yes. Right? So I think they met at, my dad was interviewing for a job at the UN. And I think it was in Addis Ababa. And was the one conducting the interview. And it just kind of, I think... My father fell in love with my mother and my mother made him work for it for 10 years. I love, I love they, 10 years. Yeah, for 10 years, they were like dating long distance because both of them were always stationed in different places. So she would be in Nepal, he would be in Tanzania. Then she would be in Kenya and he would be in Tanzania. And for like a quick second, they'd be able to like see. <laughs> Have a coffee. Uh, exactly. It was always over Bunna. I love it. I love it. What else? Oh gosh. I there's this one 
they told me when Comoros was going through a, and my mother was there doing uh, development work and my father drove like on a boat from Zanzibar to Comoros with groceries and you know yeah no, no I'm just saying this is does not happen anymore that's all I'm saying I'm like I hope people listening to this are not like gonna have this as their standard of what makes a partner worthy because this is extraordinary please continue please continue the thing that I think the most whenever they retell like these stories or my mother does now is that of like I have been spoiled this is unrealistic it's been really interesting because they both are such massive advocates for their own countries, but also have level of dedication and love for every country on the African continent. I've never, it's always felt like Africa was the backdrop to their love story in like a main character in therefore my story. But I realize how lucky I am that I've been able to kind of grasp and fully sit in all of the variety and nuance that is Africa, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. It makes me think about, you know, for so many years, I think any of us connected to the continent have been trying to push out. Africa is not a country, you know, we are 54, 55, depending on who you ask, unique countries. But it sounds like for your family, Africa was a country. Africa was that, you know, cousin in the family, that member of the family. And that is unique, I think, for us in East Africa, we are very East Africa centric. So to have this broader worldview is a gift, is a gift. And so let me ask you, how did, how do you take that maybe into the places now where you are acting and, and where does that worldview show up for you? You know, it's, it's been interesting because if Africa were like Europe, where we all bandied together with whatever comes out of Africa the way that Europe does, I think with the entertainment industry would be much different. Africa is so, like, this is the thing with this continent specifically that makes it unique to any other continent is the fact that geographically, we never were able to meet each other. You know, you have waterfalls, you have desert. So there were so many areas of the physical continent that were difficult to travel, whereas Europe has rivers, you know, that are navigable. So it's been difficult because when I I so badly want to make projects that sit in specificity for Africa, mm-hmm. of that specificity, I lose so many other countries that I would normally gain having something set in in you know Ethiopia or having something set in in Nigeria or Namibia there's there's something that colonialism did that really just held that its effects are still so alive because it makes it so difficult to collaborate collaborate across the continent yeah no what you're saying is so true i think one thing i've i've been hearing more and more especially from young people here is that if you have a Kenyan passport, I think you can travel to most of the, you know, East African bloc, the EAC countries, I think most of them, but the landmass is massive, you know, so from here, you can drive about three or four hours and reach the Tanzanian border, but that takes so many resources. And unlike Europe, they're not 99, you know, 
euro slash you know ten thousand shillings uh, flights into Tanzania, you know, it really becomes such an elite experience to have that multi-faceted experience. And so I appreciate that need to create something Pan-African, but then having being limited by the specificity, we find that here as well. You know, we're trying to speak to the diaspora and the continent, and it can feel at times really, really challenging to do that, given the way we're structured. You talked about in a TEDx talk when you were quite young, much younger, not much younger, but younger <laughs> than you were. <laughs> let me not let me not age you and you, the phrase that you said in that that really struck me was the con constant inconsistency of setting which kind of resonates in what you're saying now about wanting the specificity but also wanting the collaboration so as you think about you know the way you lived your life growing up and and having multiple places where you lived multiple languages as a part of your experience and you look to the next 20 years, do you want to continue that kind of a pattern or are there parts of that you'd like, I'd like to leave that behind and just move to Kansas, you know, and just like make roots. Is there anything in you that tugs to one, one direction or another? You know, there is, I think like naturally now and need to change my setting a lot. A friend told me this and it's always stuck with me that I feel like I wear my skin inside out. Like everything I feel, I feel like 10 times as intensely and it makes it stay in one place because justice or injustice is universal like capitalism has its reach towards every corner of the globe and so it makes almost every different setting feel the same because it's the same problem it's the same you know issue of like a widening gap between the working class and the upper class. It feels futile sometimes to mm -hmm. fight. I mean, I think in that respect, I enjoy changing setting, but at the moment, like I have this dream of a commune. I want to be on a farm growing my <laughs> and my vegetables. I, the issue, and I want to be on the African continent. That is where I know I feel the most happiest physically so hard because I'm like where where would where do I feel safe as a single woman where do I feel like you know where can I get land there's where is politically stable enough that I know that I can be there for the rest of my life and not have to make a plan b even more heart-wrenching because I'm like this is my home and I can't eat home here so I might end up in African politics. God only knows. So you have studied epidemiology, chronic disease epidemiology at Yale. You have a master's of public health. Your undergraduate is in biophysics and Carnegie from Carnegie Mellon. I'm sure you're tired of hearing all this, but it is extraordinary. So let me just first say as like a digital auntie, so proud of you. You make us proud. You make me just like, you know, we're trying, we're holding on to you with both hands. I know you're also Nigerian. However, in this interview, we are claiming you as Nairobi and Habesha and just holding on to that was such pride in our hearts. But, you know, when we talk about all of the things that you just said, land, health, access, all of those things, you know, through your academic pursuits, but on refugee camp as well, there were some, seems like some critical moments in that that led you to some of the apps that you developed. Is it Enkai? Inki? How do I pronounce that? Say it for me again. Enki. 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 That and Mosaic, both of which serve, you know, 
different communities, women who need contraception, and then refugees who are trying to, you know, really pursue a vocation. At what point in your educational journey, or maybe it was a personal experience, I don't know, maybe there's a story you can share with us where you, you took everything you were feeling and translated that into action. Oh. Just uh, a lighthearted question, Arsema. Yeah, just, just a little every day for a Tuesday afternoon. It, <laughs> it's so interesting because I think growing up in Kenya and then also being in such close proximity to Addis, I think that was the turning point for me. Mm-hmm. I was always part of these conversations my parents were having about like, it would, it would sometimes even just be you know, thought experiments that we would just discuss of like, how Mm -hmm. do we essentially save Africa, sometimes from itself? And- Every dinner time conversation. Exactly. And this is just normally what we chatted about. I think my parents really talk between themselves and me and my younger sister were just barriers to that. (laughs) (laughs) um, And I would- those would have play a part but then it was also I remember whenever we went to Addis Ababa to visit my grandmother and it was a lot I I that is like my second home now there was just something that frustrated me whenever we would drive uh in the streets because I'm like I don't understand why people are living in essentially like what are they, the aluminum like shacks, why people are coming to this window and asking for money. I don't understand, like, is there not space? Is there not? And I remember I I had this plan. I was like, if I'm going to run for prime minister of Ethiopia, and I'm going to make sure that everybody in Addis Ababa has a house. I was like, because that feels easy. I feel like that's such a thing to do. And there was always this need of like wanting things to be right because when it felt wrong it made me realize that everything I had up until this point I don't deserve it's all Mm. and chance and that is a very scary thing when you realize that your safety net is something that can quickly be pulled from under you and the only way to ensure my safety And my comfortability is to make sure that everybody has it, because then we won't have to live in this fear of like, what if I lose my money? What if I get injured and I don't, I can't do my job? What if my child gets sick? What if I get pregnant? All of these things don't become life or death scenario when you ensure that everybody has the same security that the most privileged do. And I think that was like what was going on in my mind of like, how do I ensure that? And I think that's something that feeds actually into my career now. Like my imposter syndrome only can be subsided when I make sure that everybody has the same chance. Therefore, I'm no longer an imposter. Wow. I hope you are going to write a book one day because I think those, those are really powerful and heavy themes. It makes me think of the Indigenous activist from Australia, I think it's Lila Watson, who says, you know, if you've come here to kind of feel sorry for me, then be on your way, essentially. But mm-hmm. if you've come, your liberation is bound up in mine, then let us work together. And I feel what you're saying so deeply, like 
number one, there's got to be this collective action. And number two, there's got to be this collective liberation that, that comes as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And for sure, here on the continent, we are in the vestiges of colonialism, still wrestling to find that place where that equity comes, not even equality, but equity, you know, every person getting what they need. So you, you said it comes into your career now. Tell me how it does. And I, I want to come back to the, the apps that you developed too, and kind of dig down into that. But tell me where it's showing up for you, you and your work currently. Gosh, I mean, I think it, it for me currently means that I make sure that every opportunity I get, I bring someone with me that wouldn't normally. That's like my number one goal. I want to create projects that I can populate these stories with people who've never had a chance, but now get a chance. Because I think then it just creates a much more equal footing. Then it's really merit-based, you know? And then that makes everything much more fair and much more clear in my mind. Because I'm like, if you're good, you're in it. It's not if you're good and rich. And so I'm trying to ensure that like every makeup artist that I work with is someone young, Black, and a woman. I try and make sure that every hairstylist is being put on a stage larger than the one that they were on previously. I am really dead set on wearing designers that are based on the African continent. I think that to me is like the most powerful thing I can have as an actor during the strike, because in that moment, it feels like an act of, I don't know, like fabric revolution. There's so much that is taken out of Africa textiles, you know, where it comes with ideas of fashion, like the fact that waist beads is like, are now sold in almost every single department store. And where is that money going to? It's not going to West Africa, I can tell you that. So we need to like get ahead of something to showcase something as African so that whenever it shows up after that, people can refer to this and say, okay, but we know where it came from. Being so popular now, and it wasn't before. And that's something that is actually wholly in West Africa, something culturally you know, powerful. And so, yeah, that's breaking it into this industry now. I, I love I love that. I have to say, when I was getting ready for this interview, number one, I was very nervous, even though I could be your mother. <laughs> but I was like, let me come correct on this interview, which was like exactly what you said. I was like, let me wear my maskal, my Zuri shirt, my Fulani earrings. You know, I was like, and we say this all the time on this show, the answers to our own problems are in our own hands. And I love thinking about that transferring now to an entertainment industry that has been largely extractive, right, of, of the continent and of the talent, our music, all those things. And as I've watched your interviews, your hair is different every time. Your clothes are just speaking. They're a character, like you walk on set and there's two of you. There's your clothes and then there's Arsama, you know? It's just, it's beautiful on this side of the screen to see our representation come to life through you and through the way you are expressing yourself. I've seen you do it on global stages, on you know US-based networks and other ones. And again, it makes us proud that you're an advocate. I think that's how, how change begins. Mm. Let me ask you though, how easy is that to accomplish when you want to achieve a particular look or have a particular you know set of clothes? Is that low-hanging fruit in Hollywood? Are you having to bring your own team to the set of interviews and different places to actually serve your values? 
You know, that's a really, really good question. I'm going to be 100% honest. It's not easy. I mean, change is never the smoothest path to take. Yeah, it is an uphill battle to bring people into a space that they've been like actively kept out of. Hard to advocate for people while also advocating for myself. It's something me and my mother kind of always get into a very big debate because I would rather be in a place and feel authentically myself, like I've done to not compromise myself. Because I wear it on my face. It's very, I'm, I'm an actor, but I'm not a liar. I'm a horrible liar. And so- I love that though. So it will be extremely evident if I feel as though my agency has been taken away from me. And I grew up watching my mother wear the most colorful, like, boo-boos. She would wear her gele. And she's Ethiopian, so it was very confusing. But she would wear <laughs> to the office, to the UN. I would see her wear her Abisha lips. And so, is I mean, my grandmother designed, like, the embroidery at the bottom of Abisha lips. So there's always been this really powerful of what putting together an outfit means, the visual cues that it sends and how we as those of us who are able to see are such visual people. But it's it's been it's been difficult. I've had to style myself for many things. I've had to go to designers specifically and tell them I am the one who's interested, please mail it to me. I've had to fight with editors about makeup artists who they believe did not have good enough experience but you know as black women the person who does your face and your hair it's a make or break and so I think there have been many moments where I realize at any time this could end because I've put up too much of a fuss because I'm too much of a diesel ask for too much I have to remind myself that I've made this decision but I've made the decision that it's much more fulfilling to have a short career knowing that I've stayed true to myself than to have a long career, having kissed the of white men, those who uphold systems of patriarchy and capitalism. It feels better, I think, knowing that I've stayed true to this idea, this feeling, this calling I have towards justice for all. Gives me chills, Arsema. I mean, really... I don't even know what to say in response, honestly. I don't think I've ever heard somebody be as honest to say I'd, I would rather have a short career than a long one that's compromised, mm -hmm. particularly knowing our culture. I saw this meme once that was like, the, the only thing Abishas think about is what will other people think of me? And you know, it wasn't a lie. <laughs> and for you to have come past that to the juncture where you are now is, I think, gives me hope for my own children who are couple years behind you to find that same courage and that same tenacity of spirit. I want to go back to something you said just a moment ago about showing up authentically yourself. For you at this place where you have a lot of international attention and eyes on you, I can imagine a year ago your life might have been quite different. What does showing up authentically mean to you at this juncture of your life? I think showing up authentically it changes in the settings that I'm in now because the settings can go from one extreme to the next. 
I think it means to me that every time I walk into a place, the objective can't be to please anyone else. I think it's surrounded by like honesty. I need to be so honest with myself because now no one else will be. Like this is the thing they don't tell you is the moment you get this amazing amount of success, the paranoia kicks in like this. And especially as an overthinker, I can create I create thought trees for what I believe everybody in the room is probably thinking, doing, or will think or do. That's your Abishak side right there. That's it. That's a genetic trait that you can't, it's not even your fault. You know? It's true. <laughs> Because Nigerians don't care what anyone thinks. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I was about to say. Wait, they walk into a room and like own it immediately. <laughs> I think being authentic also just means like, I can't be worried about what everyone else is doing. I think the moment that happens, the moment I try and compare myself to, you know, like, why aren't I doing these things or, or in this show or getting these sponsorships that is the moment that I stop being me and trying to be somebody else or trying to please a larger ent entity. Because I know this and my agents tell me this all the time that like my my path specifically is different. Like I'm I'm not here to entertain. I feel like I'm here to tell the truth. I feel I'm here to expose a lot. And that means that I have to understand that the package by which change is delivered is a very ugly package. It's very unattractive or else change would be easy. You know, justice would be easy. Equality would be easy. All these like great, beautiful ideas would be easy. And so I have to stay 10 toes deep with my chest out, understanding that I am that unattractive package that change is going to be delivered in. And that means that I cannot be anything but 100% genuine. If I don't feel it, I need to say it. If I do, then I say it. If I'm wrong, I have to own it and take that guilt, but not turn it into shame or pity, but rather something constructive. Because I've, I feel like to stop and wallow and... And woe is me, this like self-flagellation is what the powers that be want me to do. They want all of us to do that, to stop what we're doing and focus and turn inwards. And so I've had to make like a lot of like very clear decisions of what I feel and know my life is not going to look like. And then I just kind of what it will look like from there. Your your words remind me of one of the books that I read has really inspired you, Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me. Mm -hmm. And I want to read you a passage in there that he says to his son, just in the same you know tenor of what you've been saying, just get your reaction to it. Uh, I love this book. All of my kids have had to read it. It sits prominently in our home, like a part of the family. And I just think this the thinker and the challenge that we need. He's, he's like you, he comes in a very hard package for some people, but full of truth. So he says in his book to his son, and I still urge you to struggle, struggle for the memory of your ancestors, struggle for wisdom, 
struggle for the warmth of the Mecca, struggle for your grandmother and grandfather, for your name. What does that mean to you? What does Coates' work mean to you as you, you navigate this world of being a truth teller? It makes me realize that all of life is a struggle. I think that's sadly in the definition of life. It reminds me of when I was in Ethiopia recently, a bearing my grandmother, there was an amazing priest of the Orthodox Church, a kiss, and he said something so profound, which has been on my mind, which is like, if life was a joyous thing, why is it that when a baby is born, they cry? And that has made me understand and shift my understanding about life and death specifically. This space we take in where we'll never be absent of struggle. And so now it's about making sure that those struggles are worth something to us. That's all you can do is find purpose in the struggle. And I feel like that very much what Tanisi is writing about to his son. I think that's what I would tell my child is that, you know, I know it sucks, but you have to find for yourself, for the moment you have here, what is worth the sucking. Yeah. Say that, say that. I mean, so the other side of the coin, though, in, in Kota's work is also this like, deep love he has for his son, right? He talks about Black mothers in particular love their children with an obsessive love because they come to them already threatened. Mm. And myself have four kids and I just sent my kids, my twin boys to the U.S. for college. They've never lived in the U.S. Oh, and one wow. of my sons is at UNC. And first week on campus, there was a campus shooting. First week. And, you know, we were on the phone for hours. The kids were in lockdown for several hours. I feel like this has turned into like a, a talk with my girlfriends, but sorry, just stay with me. Stay with me. There's, there's a question in this, but, you know, in lockdown for three hours, we're texting and calling the whole time. His older sister's also at UNC and, you know, until they, they got the all clear. And my heart, I just, I could hear my heart in my ears thinking how stupid, stupid, stupid. Why did I send my child to the U.S.? Like, what was I thinking? You know, within the first week, his life is under threat. But that pulls me into Coates's words. It's because of this deep, deep love, right? There's this affection that is unspoken and this tradition, I think, in our culture in particular that is passed down from grandmother to grand, to mother to daughter and, and so on and so forth. And also the fathers and sons for sure out there and, and crossways. So first let me express my condolences on um, losing your, your grandmother. I know that that is not easy, but I would love to just hear from you you know, what does this also culture of love, of this transference of affection, does that give you some strength as you start to navigate? Pretty challenging. I mean, you're in, in an entertainment industry that, like you said, has room for maybe a few of us, but not all of us. What of their love also, you know, what does their love give you as, as you find yourself in these, in these spaces? Oof. You know, it reminds me that I am not in this enter in this I'm not in this industry for love because I have that and bounce to the point where like my mother will want to hug me and I'm like oh, it's enough it's enough <laughs> but that like there's something truly I don't know it's like while 
everybody walks with their heart just like naked in their rib cage. I have like I have something around my heart and that's my family so that you know the heart can bounce around it doesn't it doesn't bruise because there's something extra tissue around it and I think that's what that intense amount of affection does mind you not every no family is perfect I think there is a lot of stuff that I'm hoping my family will change on their views but that's what I'm there for, you know? That's the point of having a next generation is that they advance and bring everybody forward. And so it's been, it's it's strange because as I get older, I'm recognizing like how much love is a scary thing. Like I don't understand for mothers how you're able to, walk around with your heart outside of your body essentially like i feel i'm i feel almost like my mother's mother i'm like call me we have today how are you have you eaten and so there's this intense thing about love because it's tied to a person whose existence is finite which means that that love at some point while you will forever give it as long as you are breathing, you may not get it back. And that's a scary thing. So I think having so much love makes me grateful and also fearful at the very same time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course, because you're carrying around the most yeah. precious thing in your hands. And you're right, it's otherworldly to be a parent for sure. What do you think, Arsena? I mean, again, we, we share a bit of, you know, shared cultural what do you feel like will be a sign that we are moving forward and that maybe there's some cultural shifts towards, you know, like they're thinking, I mean, I can think about my own family and feel the same sentiment. Mm. Love them, not perfect, but wow, there's there's some shading there that I wish would change. Do you feel like there's something you can either maybe already look at and say, this has changed in my lifetime. Like these conversations that I've had that have been hard has brought this difference or what will be that what will be that sign um, that some things are starting to get better? You know, I think it would be the I don't know. There's there's so much. I I think it would it would start with, you know, the moment you pick at something, you realize that it all shares the same root. But there's something I find very frightening about the honestly the levels of homophobia and transphobia that are happening on the African continent. I think it's indicative of, I don't know, some sort of distraction tool, but I think it also, it, it saddens me because it's this massive like thorn left of in like in the body of Africa by colonialism, this need to fixate on what somebody else is doing, when in reality, even if we are to make it a religious thing, there are so many moments in the Bible where, I mean, I think of one specifically where Jesus went to the church and he destroyed the marketplace that was there. So how do you love money in the house of God? That is capitalism. But yet we do not fight it with such a fervor 
And so for me, there's something in that that feels pointed and targeted. And I think that would be the first thing that would allow like Ethiopia to take off its own, you know, own shackles, sort itself out. There should be no reason, I think, why the police is targeting people based on their sexuality. There are bigger things. So I think for me, that's been the one that, and it's it's the most jarring thing when I go from London back home, the conversations, I'm like, right, we are not all, we don't agree on a lot of things. And it then is such as backward and archaic view of these countries, because then the West creates this narrative that shows these places as obviously enough power to victimize their own people, but not enough intellect to recognize equality. And then why do they deserve equality? It just feels so. But yeah, I think that for me would be the biggest jewel um, in knowing that like something is changing because it means that we're focusing on, on, on something else, something real. Thank you for saying that. Um, not many people have the courage to say that. And, and we look around, I, I share that with sentiment 100%. You know, there was this law that was passed in Uganda a couple of months ago that basically outlaws sexuality at the threat of death. And it, we, it was like, where, where are we living right now? You know, and people in Kenya, you know, there are now you know, organizations that can register in support of those who identify as queer. Now that, that was passed into law. And as a backlash to that, there were protests all over town. Queer friends of mine were saying they did not feel safe for the first time in Kenya, despite other laws that exist on, on the books. And so I think you're absolutely right. It is We have so many more issues to focus on. And I think it's fear that fuels it. So let me shift a little bit and, and talk about another one of the authors that you, you've talked about in some of your interviews that has really moved you, Zora Neale Hurston and her seminal work, Their Eyes Were Watching God, another book that was required reading for my kids because, you know, in international schools, you, may, you might yeah. remember the curriculum can be all over the place. So you don't always get some of these classics, you know, in your in your classroom, even though there, there are definitely some all, African authors that get more, which is wonderful. But, you know, in, in that book, there's this beautiful, beautiful quote between between Janie and her grandmother. And Nanny says to her, and I just want to make sure I get it right, so I'm going to read it exactly. But she says to her, there are years that ask the questions and years that answer it. You know, when you think about this moment where you are right now at this kind of global stage and rightfully so are being celebrated, are there years for you as you look back a little bit where there are answers and years that are questions? And if so, what year are you in right now? Do you feel like you're in a question year or an answer year? Uh, how are you feeling at this moment? Well, that's a really good question. One, that's my favorite quote in the whole entire book. This year, I think, is a year that asks questions. Last year, I think, like, because that's a year that I, you know, a lot of things changed. And then this year is when they were public. I think last year, a lot of things were answered in that I'm on the right path. And then this year has been much more the nitty gritty of, are you sure you want to do this? Are you strong enough? It will test your security. It will test your love of yourself. It will test everything. Do you want it? And there is something like very painful about 
being asked questions because you can't lie to yourself. You know, you will know when you have lied. There's no, like, there's no point. And so there's something very scary when it's a questions or asking year rather than answer. It means that like the roads have just opened up. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to last year when it was an answer year. What did that feel like to have some answers? You know, we, we talked about earlier about you didn't just like get a one degree and think this is good. Night, let me try acting. Like you went far. You, you developed apps. You got a master's at, you know, just a little school called Yale in Connecticut. <laughs> you know, you did all this hard work to get to a certain point and you shifted. So what does that feel like first to shift? And what does it feel like to say, yeah, that this was the right answer? you know, theater, the stage. And I know you had been auditioning and involved in theater prior to, you know, throughout your education, but what did that feel like at that juncture? I think it felt, oh gosh, it felt uh, scary when everything started to shift, when questions were answered. Because now I have no choice but to start my life. I think that was the security I had in university is that no matter my age, there is a cushion in the world of academia. It's like everything is theoretical, which is nice because that means very low stakes. You know, we can debate equality without really having to feel what inequality feels like. Yeah, we can stay in that headspace. Exactly. Yeah, the theoretical conversations, you know. And I think when questions are answered, like I was in shock. I, I think specifically as Black women, we feel so much that we don't deserve a lot. Like I, I felt like I was like, oh, I, I, don't des- I don't deserve this. I haven't worked hard enough when I know for certain there are white men who have done a fraction of what I've done and felt extremely comfortable walking into a room and taking those jobs. So it's hard and absolutely frightening because the stakes are higher. Like this is now my life. I don't get to redo my 20s or you know, undo mistakes. Like the world has shown us that if you make a mistake, you can be really messed up. And so there's always that feeling that my safety net will be ripped from me. And I think that never is true because answers are not permanent. They just answer the question from before. But if the question, then the answer will change as well. So I'm lucky that I've gotten to Like all of those years in university have been question years. I never got answers. I was like, maybe this, maybe this, maybe, maybe this. Then finally, like the first answer, answers started coming in when the road, when, when I started making decisions for myself. So, you know, I've asked you some, some hardball questions here and just, you know, in terms of like thought and just because we're just curious you know what we've read about you it's clear that you come to this moment with heft and depth and thought and nuance that that we don't always get and and so it makes me grateful to have this conversation with you but of course we want to also understand 
this beautiful artistic side of Ashmadachir. The globe, the globe is now starting to get to enjoy. And so let's start with with kind of you know your roots in terms of what you love as an artist, the music you love, the films you love. Tell us a little bit about the music and, and pieces of art, you know, and all of its genres that have inspired you and, and made you want to be a part of this industry. Oh wow. Favorite books, favorite music, that kind of thing. This is the thing is like, I feel like very undefined by genres. I love all genres. I wanted to be an artist is because then I can delve into the making of all of these different things that I love. I, I mean, oh, what are my favorite? I'm like trying to look at some of my, my books right now. <laughs> I like, I've been reading. I love, I love, I've always loved nonfiction and I'm reading the, about this Ghanaian con man, um, John Blamieza, who like created this massive con based on like Nkrumah and like this lost gold. But it's so interesting because it ties like colonialism and like espionage. It's like the thing that I would love to adapt into a movie. So I love that. I've been, I love Bell Hooks. I read every single thing that she's written. I used to love Audre Lorde. Now I think I've grown up a bit and I see <laughs> uh, blind spots. But I've been, I love Toni Morrison. I think what she does with like this Afro surrealism before anyone that was a thing is so so peak. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I, I could I just reread uh, Sula. Oh, a couple months ago. So good. And I was just like, how did this not win, win every prize? Like you know, but the, <laughs> I was just everything she's written. Yeah. Just take the money, take the yeah yeah. <laughs> Take it all, take it all, take it all. My my goddaughter is actually named Nina Simone Sula. And I was telling my girlfriend, I was like, oh, you just gave her a light name to carry her whole life. Oh. Nina Simone Sula, are you kidding me? <laughs> that is. How do you walk around with that name? You know, she's going to have, she's born for greatness for sure. But what about music? If we were to pop into, if you were curating a playlist for Spotify, what are some of your must listen to either artists or songs? Oh my God. I'm obsessed with Fatumata Diawara, an amazing Mali. I don't know, I don't know her. Mali, okay. I highly recommend, like there's something about her okay. voice. It feels like rock and she sings in... I should know what they speak in, in Mali. Um, but there's something about music from the continent that just, it hits a different way. I've been listening to a lot of Obonjayar, who's Nigerian. Um, Sauti Soul has been like my epic favorite from the very Okay, now I, that's going to make everyone happy. I'm <laughs> sorry. I have loved and have been obsessed with Kenyan you got like East African music has it's 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 something special. Um, back into Mulatu, Astaka, Miriam Makeba, and then like all the way up to like Ama Piano. There's this amazing Angolan singer. Um, I think her name is Ponga. She sings in Portuguese. It is like it hits a specific place in your soul. I love listening to things also from like the African diaspora that is not 
British or American, stuff from Latin America and Brazilian artists. And Isa is an amazing Brazilian musician that I've been obsessed with. I'm going to look all these people up and I'm going to make a, a Spotify playlist and call it Arsema's Chill Zone something. I'm going to call it something cool. <laughs> I've never heard on there, but yeah. Have you heard of um, Barhana? He's an Ethiopian artist, Ethiopian-American. He's kind of in this like new age music, but very also has like an acoustic. It's just gorgeous. And he just did this trip to Ethiopia and went to Harar. He went to Addis Ababa. He went to all these different places. He's actually got a film that's accompanying his music. And he's a young guy around around your age, you know, not, not yet 30. And, and he actually is from Atlanta as well. Oh, wow. And it's just a beautiful storytelling project. I think the first track was called Ababa Bukila, which I was just like, oh, okay, I'm hooked. I'm hooked. So he's he's amazing. You should you should check him out. No, I definitely. Yeah, he reminds me of you actually. This like righteous indignation about our culture will will carry on. I will carry it. It's he's really. I, I'm impressed by his work. So I definitely look him. He's, he's great. Thank you for that. That actually reminds me of. I've been obsessed with Maz Amengist, who wrote Adam, and I'm about to actually go and buy Beneath the Lion's Gaze because I'm obsessed with the Durg. I feel like there's so much that no one knows about the Red Terror. Absolutely. So you're working backwards in her works then? Yes. Yeah, 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 I am. So my daughter actually is um, loves the arts. She's danced her whole life. And when she knew I was going to interview you, she's actually behind me in my room, in the room, but she doesn't know when to come out. So, <laughs> so she, I've heard you talk about a lot and we've already covered it so much in, in this, this interview about you know, bringing yourself fully to the places and being authentic and being fully present. And, and that's not easy. And for me, the arts should be joyful. Right? There should be this joy of engaging with the, the work. So she's coming right now. So she has just been cast in her first stage performance. Her name is Saron. Saron, come say hi, Tarsima. Hello. Can you see her? <laughs> so Arsema, she wanted to ask you a question about the show that she's in and kind of bringing her Blackness into that, this space. So you want to ask another question? Yes. Okay. Uh, Let me turn the camera, wait. Let me turn the camera so they can see you. Okay, there we go, there we go, okay. It's so nice to meet you. Likewise. So this year we're doing Mamma Mia as our high school production. Oh, wow. Mamma Mia. Okay. And of course it's a very white <laughs> play. And I would say for me, being black is something I cherish and it's a big part of my identity. So I wanted to ask you, what's a way that I can bring my Blackness into this role that I have? Oh, what what role specifically in Mamma Mia do you have? I'm playing Tanya, which is like one of the aunts. Oh. You no, know, the three, like, yeah, the mom is the main character that she's got two aunts, yeah. Oh, that's a fun character. I mean, I think that's interesting because that actually gives you so much more flexibility because I think just by being you, you bring it in, you know? I think there's something, I mean, actually all those roles really could be any, yeah, any race really. Uh, yeah. You could Hamilton it, you know? Exactly. But there's also the fact that like, there is a really big relationship between Greece and Ethiopia there is so many reasons why your character would be there as a black woman that you can 
really create your entire backstory as rich, uh, make it as rich as you want. So that like the moment you say your lines, it is as if you, a black girl are saying, you know, just what you would normally say because you've built already into every single word that she says, like this really enriched and very black history. I would say like the best. Yeah, I like that. Make sure your hair is at natural. Do it. As, <laughs> how would a black go on vacation to Greece? You know, she probably had braids, you know, do all of those beautiful things that give her that specificity so that all you as the actor have to do is say the lines. I love that. She's going to have to wear a bonnet at some point. Shush, you know, shush on the and the butt. Yes, and the Ella, just like that for the edge. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Exactly, exactly. I love that. I love the idea of the backstory. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. To bring the backstory to the character. It's beautiful. So now Tanya is Tigist. Yeah. But I love that. <laughs> She's on vacation. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thank you so much. No <laughs> Thank you. Good question. Thank you for that. I took a little um, privilege by by having you give advice to my daughter. I know that one a lot to her. No worries. The advice, if it stays with me, is useless. So it's good to share it. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're absolutely right. It it, it is useless. If it stays inside. Okay. So Arsema, just hearing your story, you know, of living across the continent, and I actually haven't even named all the countries you lived in. C can you name all the countries? Like in one go, do you ever forget? Okay, let's let's hear them. Okay, America, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Benin, Togo, France, UK. I feel like I'm forgetting some. South Africa. South Africa? Yes, South Africa. <laughs> Anything else? Okay, so nine full countries. Okay, so, you know, many people in the U.S. anyways do not know that Nollywood, um, you know, the entertainment industry in Nigeria is the second largest in the world. Uh, $6.4 billion a year generates in, in money for somebody's pocket. So tell me, as somebody who has who is Nigerian, but also has this career blooming in Hollywood, what do you think Nollywood could teach your colleagues over there in, in, in Southern California? You know, I was thinking about this question for actually like a while. Almost was like, oh, thank God I didn't get asked it. <laughs> but then I, I, you, you, you're, you're coming back to it because I, I think it's, I think my answer would have to be the fact that there's something playful about Nollywood. There's this lack of fear. This they don't take it so seriously. I think that was originally what, you know, this whole idea. That's. In drama school, they tell us that like what we're doing is not acting, what we're doing is playing. So when you play and you have fun, the audience will invest in that. And I think that is so true in Nollywood. I remember growing up and being like, whatever was happening, laughing, engaged in the ridiculous storylines. There's this beautiful, they don't care if they get it wrong, you know? And I think that is something Hollywood can take a little bit of is this playfulness, this willingness to experiment 
I think that's why you have a lot of like the same movies sometimes over and over again is because they've locked onto a formula that they know works and they don't want to ever veer from it. And Nollywood, I mean, the fire is upside down on a ceiling and then there's a witch doctor <laughs> right across the street. You know? Always a witch doctor, always. always a witch doctor. So it's... <laughs> There's this, there's this beautifulness. This, they don't take themselves so seriously. It's this lack of fear of being wrong or making a mistake that makes cinema and TV and film so so fun. Um, yeah, that would be it. So I want to. I got to ask you this follow up question to that because it just reminds me again of your path to this to the stage and the big screen, but coming from such a rich science background. What do you think the sciences and the arts take from each other? You know, similarly, what Nollywood could teach Hollywood. What could your, what could the sciences and academia teach entertainment and vice versa? You know, how do they, you see them interplaying um, either in you or in the work that you want to do? You know, I think there is so much overlap, especially now where like with technology becoming part of the arts, um, I think for science and for academia, there is this, this distance, um, that thing that we talked about of like, everything is theoretical, that is so opposite to the arts, because in the arts, everything is so personal. Everything is inspired from your own story. It's, you know, when you act, the only instrument you have is your own body. And there's something in that, I don't know which one, maybe they both need to meet in the middle where the arts, they don't have to feel as personal because it feels like when something gets rejected, it's a personal attack. When something changed, when the race is changed, when the setting is changed, it feels like a personal attack on like the audience, on the creatives. And I think there needs to be that added more into academia and into sciences, the, the face of the person or the face of the disease that you're, you're, you're researching, you know, the people that you're canvassing for, for research, all of these things, there needs to be this personal touch that I think has been completely removed from it maybe it's because they don't like it's an attempt to remove bias but there's there is something there I don't know what it is like the arts is so focused on the, the human and corporeal experience whereas academia is so head that if maybe it's just about like removing the mind body divorce I think that is the thing Right. It's like the, what I, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's, you know, the bringing it into the practical realm, you know, taking everything, you know, understand research have tested, then applying it in a way and the arts are always applying it. That is like you said, your, your body is an instrument. I love how you put that. That's, it's really beautiful to think about that as a symbol of what the arts can be bodies as instruments, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Oh, thank you, Lily. So I, I don't even know how long I've kept you. It looks like I've kept you a long time. So I want to play a game with you before we let you go yes. um, called Could We Be Cousins? So for the listeners out there, 
you know, in Ethiopia, the names are passed down. Usually you take your father's first name as your surname. So it's really actually hard to trace it through a family line per se, unless you have it written down because everybody's name changes every single time. But I happen to share a surname with Arsema's family. So I thought it'd be fun for us to play a little game called Could We Be Cousins? In Ethiopia, we would have to be siblings, but let's not get too crazy here. We'll call it cousins. Okay, so Ashma, I'm going to ask you a question. Most of them are yes, no. And the way this is going to work is I have some paper here. Here we go. And I'm going to write down the answers, my answer to it. Mm-hmm. And then we'll kind of answer at the same time. We'll see if we can time this really well. And then we'll tally up the score at the end. And um, we'll we'll figure out if, if this thing is going to, you know, if we'll see each other at the family barbecue yes. next July. Okay, so that's, that's, that's what we're looking at. Okay. Okay. So question number one, did your mom and or relative and or auntie put in any, I think it's going to be more of a uh, the mother role here, ever recycle ice cream containers or other food containers for using for what? To the point where you would go to the freezer thinking you're opening up ice cream only to find what of some sort, yes or no. So this is a Yes or no kind of question. Okay. <laughs> Two, three. What what's your answer? Yeah. This is my answer. Yes, yes. Okay, okay. So that's one point for the cousins that, that is dedicated to Atu and Alam and everybody else who ruined my childhood Friday nights with their what frozen in my my freezer. It's through Ababa. She knows herself. So Asu. <laughs> exactly. This is for this is for you, aunties. Okay. All right, so next question. Mm. If you had to choose between kutfo, furfur, and dulet, kutfo, furfur, or dulet, what are you picking? So this is not yes, no. This is, you gotta, you gotta, you know, make a decision on this one. Okay. Okay, one, two, three. Oh, I was gonna say kutfo. Oh, you said kutfo. You said kutfo. Hey, kutfo, I, I love, it's, it was it was one or the other, I'm gonna say. Okay, okay. Well, it looks like we're we're dividing now it's one one. So for cousin, not cousin. Okay, so I, I'm I'm a first for good writer. Kutfo has done me wrong a few times. Oh really? You know, you don't have a kutfo story of like at a wedding where you just went too far with the kutfo and then you pay for it the next day, nothing. You no, know, but that is like it's always worth it. I have never tasted anything that gives puts a smile on my face the way kutfo does. It's the smell, okay. it's the cottage cheese, the eye sometimes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I, I agree with you. There are times where I can feel my anemia rising and I'm like, the only thing that will solve this is kutfo. And I do order kutfo because we don't make it at home. I do have to order kutfo from Abyssinia. Abyssinia was probably here when you were living. Yeah, yeah. It's been around before. For, it's good. Yes. Uh, okay. So we're one, one. Okay. Next question. At some point, this is a yes or no. At some point, have you had to download either WhatsApp, Viber, or Telegram to keep in touch with family? And some people will have no idea what these apps are, but yeah. Viber, Telegram, yes, 100%. Yes. I and when people came up with, yeah, yeah, when people came up with Telegram, I'm like, I can't, I can't, I cannot do another app just to talk to. You know, I don't understand. Yeah, I can't. That one exists now. That one's new. That one's new. And it's really annoying because every time somebody joins, it's like, Dawit has joined oh. in 10. I'm like, 
I don't, I don't need to know that, but it's, I, yeah. That's like, all right, two, one, two, one. It's looking good for, for the cookout. Okay, so next, you ever eat non-Ethiopian or non-Nigerian food with your fingers because it simply makes more sense? Yes or no? Non-Ethiopian, non-Nigerian food with the fingers. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? My dad calls it the first forks. Why do we need to use forks? These were the first forks. <laughs> I'm going to say the next time I'm in a restaurant and somebody looks at me weird. Because I'm like, exactly. Like, it just makes sense. I like it. It tastes better. Just look at it. It looks like a fork. Exa exactly. I mean, this is. No, there's a reason. You know, okay. <laughs> next question. Okay. Habashas are the queens of nicknames. That's true. Did you have a nickname growing up that once your classmates, friends outside the home heard about it, insisted on using and making fun of you for? Yes or no? <laughs> and then, of course, I'm going to ask you about the nickname. Yes. So we don't have to answer. However, that's coming. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay, Choo Choo, tell me what your nickname was. I'm so it's not even, I didn't get this when I was younger. It only happened when I was just in in Addis. Like, they were like, why don't you have a Beitsim? Why don't you have like an... Yeah, your Beitsim, exactly. So, Which, for those listening, means a house name, a house name. name. And they're like, okay, well, I was like, give me one. They're like, us too. I was like, why Please. in the world? And then my cousins were like, that sounds like an old woman's name. But then when I got... 100%. And I told my boyfriend, he was like, oh, that's your new name from now on. And I was like, please. No. <laughs> As to you, man, no. Man, no. As to you. <laughs> so actually, Lily is my Beitsin. Okay. My given name at birth was Abawit, which even Ethiopians were having a hard time pronouncing. My parents had to go deep orthodox and call me like, it's it's one of Jehovah's names in the Bible. Jehovah's Abawit, Jehovah Jireh, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, nobody's heard of Tzabaot. It means God of mercy. So, yeah. So then my dad started calling me Ililikia. So he is from Harar. And this is like um, um, a Romania name. And so then it became, of course, when I came to the U.S., it became Lily. Of course. And then actually they wanted to call me Lillian. They're like, we can't say Lily. So how about, we know Lillian. I was like, I'm not going by Lillian. So then all these years later, my Betsam of Lily became my my legal government name. Isn't that sad? That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a real evolution. And then my husband's last name is Piper. So imagine now I've gone from about Salomon to being Lily Piper. And then I was like, oh no, I have to hyphenate. This is just, yeah, not gonna, that's not gonna work for me. No, I hear that. Yeah. I'm trying to yeah. to my name because I'm like, I want that. Yeah. So I exactly. Arsena is good though. Arsena is like you know. Yeah, that's, that, that's an indicator. That's an indicator. Okay, next question. I only have two more. Okay, were you allowed to attend sleepovers as a child, or did you hear a, a refrain similar to "Why do you need to go? You have a bed at home." Okay. Oh, I did it wrong. I did my answers. Is it wrong? Okay. Okay, so did you attend sleepovers or were you told you have a bed at home? So did you attend sleepovers? No, yeah. <laughs> no, no, 100% no. And did I hear that refrain? Yes. Yeah, I yeah. Get yeah. On. yeah. That's so funny. 
I was like, yeah, that it was. Yeah, it was a lot of like, why? Why do you need to sleep? In yeah, why? Yeah, exactly. Why? So many questions. Why? It's interesting because I am I, just over just under twenty years older than you, and still, that like is like apparently also a genetic code. Or I think most black people in the world, like you, just don't let your kids have have fun. <laughs> do you let your your kids go on sleepovers? So this is what's happened. I have gone the other extreme where I do. I'm like, I'm doing everything. I, I'm letting them do everything my parents didn't let me do. However, I do prefer if it's at my house. Yeah. I do try and put that out as an option first. Why doesn't everyone come here? Mm. So that we somehow kind of manipulated a little bit because my husband is black American. So he's like, I don't, I don't get it. I was like, I don't need you to get it. I'm just telling you this is how my preference. So yeah, my, I'm a hybrid. I'm a hybrid on that one. Oh my God, I love that. Okay. One more question. Mm. Actually, maybe two, maybe two. Okay. Are any of your family members named the following? Mm -hmm. Aman, Nati, Yoni, Saron, Betty, or Meron? Aman, Nati, Yoni, Saron, Betty, or Meron? Yes or no? Yes. Yes, 100%. And probably you have all those names. I can't get this on camera. Right. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. I have you. you have a Betty in your family? And Meron. Yes. Same. Yeah, same. Betty, I have a Meron, I have a Sauron, I have an Aman. You don't have an Aman? Oh. I feel like Aman is like second most common name, no? Okay. That you've met. That I've met, yeah. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. <laughs> okay, last question. Don't be offended. We're all in the same boat. Can you fit more than four fingers on your forehead? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Oh. Yes. Yes, girl. Yes. My husband calls it the five head. Literally. Look at yes, this. That's the thing. Yeah. Literally five, five fingers. I, yeah. And some days it's six, depending on how the eyebrows are doing. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it looks like the score oh, yeah. was six to one. That's amazing. Arsema, we're cousins. I know. I'm in the family now. We're family. <laughs> So now I can hit you up for money and oh, you know, yeah. contact. You know, that's what happens. Cyber group chat. <laughs> exactly. Add me to the group chat. So Arsema, we always ask people two questions before we let them go, which we ask every single person because we do feel like there's this beautiful common thread to people, whether we're talking to, you know, people in the entertainment industry like yourself, or if we're talking to somebody who's working in an NGO. So the first question is, what is your favorite drink? Does not have to be alcoholic. Just what's that beverage you go to when you want comfort or you're on a Friday night? What's your favorite drink? Dawa. I Dawa. Like even a not like usually non-alcoholic because I have it with my mom, but yes. It's it just there's something about it that like warms me from the inside out. I love it. A hundred percent. And they make it so good in Nairobi, like all that ginger. It will cure everything True. as it goes down. No, I love it. I'm obsessed. <laughs> yes, love that. Love that. Okay. And the last question, you know, we're all about joy and justice here today. So, uh, here. So let me ask you, what is bringing you joy today? Oh, um is bringing me joy today honestly it's it's really like this conversation I think 
so many times like I keep it in my head and I'm like, I'm the only one who thinks this. I'm crazy. I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's so refreshing. And like, I feel a weight lifted off my shoulders knowing that mm-hmm. I'm not alone in a lot of these thoughts and feelings and mm-hmm. the of wanting more for, for this content. Mm-hmm. So this has given me so much joy. Oh, well, the feeling is so, so mutual. This has just been a delight, a complete delight. Like I said to you, you are number one on our list. And so you have lifted all of us just with your candidness, with your warmth, with your wisdom at your ripe old age. It's just amazing how much I've learned just from talking to you. So thank you for coming on. Salam and hello. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you for being with us. And listeners, we're so glad you tuned in as well. It's been a joy to welcome you to season two. So keep listening. We'll have a new episode every Tuesday. Don't miss it. And follow us. You know where to find us at Salam and Hello on all your platforms. And if you'd like to reach out, send us a DM. Send me an email, lily at salamandhello.com. Until we see you next week, peace. Maybe one day we'll get onto something. Until then, we say, say, oh, don't. Mm-hmm. I know it's hard, but baby, you just got to hold on. Mm-hmm. I know it's hard, but baby, you just got to.